Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Jean Kapler. Hi. Jean, thanks for coming on Big Talk. Uh, thanks for having me here, Michael. Jean uh, is a clinical social worker. She also was 2016 Bloomington Woman of the Year. She's running for an at-large seat in the Bloomington City Council. She's running in the Democratic primary. She's running against uh, about five other people, uh, three incumbents, Susan Sandberg, Jim Sims, and Andy Ruff, a couple of other challengers, Vox Booker and Matt Flaherty. The top three of those who wins in the Democratic election will then run in the general election. And this being Bloomington, Gene, once you win the Democratic primary, you're, you're in. Well, By and large. That seems to be the case, although there have been some Republicans on the city council in the past. Yes. Uh, here and there. But, um, you know, I, 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 at this point, I'm not aware of any Republicans running for these seats either. So. Right, for the at-large seats. Mm-hmm. Last week, we had Andrew Gunther on. He's the only Republican running in the city election uh, in the primaries this year. Now, they could caucus in some people. That's possible, mm-hmm. that party. But uh, that's the way it runs here. Do you like that? You know, I'm a Democrat for very clear reasons because I um, my values align with those expressed by the Democratic Party. But I'm a big believer in everybody's voice needs to be heard. And the more diversity we have in the discussion, the better the outcomes can be. And so, you know, uh, I... I would welcome having some Republicans in the decision-making mix. Um, so that's what I would say. I, I, I think having challengers in an election just uh, improves the quality of conversation we have about the issues and really gives voters uh, more of a choice. Like one of the people who's running this year for mayor, Amanda Barge, you, as I said, a clinical social worker. That's two of you now. Mm-hmm. What, what is it with uh, social work that draws people to politics? Well, you know, social work is uh, one of those professions with very, our values are right up front. We believe in the dignity and worth of the person. We believe in economic and social justice. Um, and we believe in the value of relationships. And it's in our code of ethics that we can't just work with our clients directly. We need to be out there working to make sure our world is a more just place. We believe that, you know, what we see in terms of these issues, mental health issues, substance use disorders, are not just problems within a person, but they're really the result of the interaction of that person in their environment. And quite often that environment is oppressive um, with uh, uh, systemic racism and, and 
heterosexism, and it just makes it harder for individuals to make it through life. Sometimes it's economic oppression. Sometimes it's lack of health access to health care. And so when you need some support, you can't get it, and then problems get worse. And so I've always been very committed to creating better communities and addressing oppression and uh, systematic problems that, that keep people down. And so stepping into the political arena for me just is one more step towards doing that. I've done a lot of activism, uh, working on particular issues, uh, and this is one more step towards making a difference. I wonder, are there two Bloomingtons, at least in the economic sense? Oh my gosh, yes. I, I'm, that's the main issue that uh, is getting me into this race. I think that our city does some, has a really good approach to, you know, um, bringing in businesses. We're struggling with an affordable housing crisis, but, you know, um, our city government understands that, and I think our Monroe County government understands that and is working on that. But there's a whole segment of our folks that when a new business comes in town and starts hiring, they're not getting hired. They're they're on the margins. And uh I think any economic growth that we do needs to be inclusive in its uh, strategies. And, you know, I, it's not okay for me, for myself to be doing okay, for folks in my neighborhood generally to be doing okay, and then there's a whole group of folks that either don't have a roof over their head or are struggling just to find some food. Thankfully, we have a strong social services safety network here, but you know, it should not be that hard, and people should not be feeling like they're on the margins. Do you think that there's any town or city in the United States where what you have just described doesn't stand? I don't think that there is any town where everyone feels included. Right. Uh, I think that well, and partly, if you look at where we're at as a nation um, and where we're at politically, I think the the continuation of, you know, not seeing housing as a human right, we have some cultural change to do around that and how we look at that. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, people have seen someone who's experiencing homelessness as, well, there's a, they're having problems. Yeah. Not there's a system that has great big gaping holes in it that people fall through the minute right. they might have a problem. My family, I grew up solidly middle class. My dad was a social worker. My mom had a high school diploma, but she worked in some human services. And my dad, I, I don't even remember what the situation was, um, but he ended up in between jobs. Uh, right at the time that our landlord was going to put the house on the market, we were losing our housing. We spent like six months living in one of those extended stay hotels with like, wow. you know, a main room and a little kitchenette. And right. my sister and I slept on a pullout in the kitchen. I, re I remember spending part of my senior year there. And we're solidly middle class. Yeah. And if things, if, if the constellations align and we end up in a situation like that, 
you know, think about a person who, you know, maybe doesn't have a professional degree mm-hmm. and is working a minimum wage job and then has a health issue or something that comes, you know, a relapse, whatever it is, comes and it interferes with what they're making that's keeping them living on the margins anyway. It doesn't take much. It's frustrating and it's around the nation, but we can start on a local level to remedy some of this. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're hoping to do, at least here in Bloomington, mm-hmm. if you get elected to the council in November. I want to go over your platform, your issues, the things that are important to you. We'll get there. Okay. But I want to find out a little bit about you. How did you get to this position? Now, uh, I noticed that you came to Bloomington, as so many did, to go to school here. (laughs) Where where were you raised? So I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh Uh, But growing up, we lived in a number of different states, actually. I lived in Michigan in my early childhood, Illinois for most of my childhood and early adulthood, um, a year out in California. And then I ended up coming out here. I have a, a bachelor's and a master's degree in biology. Uh-huh. Uh, I was planning on doing research on turtles. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so you can see how that leads nice and smoothly into a career in social work. Obviously. Uh, right. <laughs> so I came out here, started a Ph.D. program, did three years in that program, some research, completed the coursework, but found that it just wasn't feeding my soul, Yeah, you know. And, I mean, I grew up with a social worker as a father who, like, after dinner when I was in sixth grade, we'd go for walks talking about health care in America, you know. <laughs> and so I, I kind of couldn't escape it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I ended up uh, getting a job here in the community and going to uh, a master's program in social work uh, part-time while I worked full-time. Bloomington is the place that I've lived the longest in my life, ever. I mean, this is my hometown at this point. It doesn't matter that I wasn't born here. When did you get here? 92. 92. Yeah. You uh, got your master's at IUPUI. Yeah. So you commuted. I commuted. That's one of those things that a lot of crazy people in this (laughs) town do, I think. Yeah, I was working full-time, taking evening classes. That was was a heavy load, but I, I couldn't see just moving up to Indianapolis. I love Bloomington. I I like to drive, so it worked out okay. From uh, about uh, the year 2000 to 2014, you ran your own private social work practice. Uh, you dealt with uh, LGBTQ clients, uh, not exclusively. A lot of your work had to do with brain injuries. Mm-hmm. A lot had to do with addictions, mental illness, physical disabilities, and as you say, the homeless. You were doing that all uh, for almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then you went to work for the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana, up in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. What are you doing over there? Well, so at RHI, we have a program called Resource Facilitation that's a statewide program, working with folks with any sort of brain injuries. And uh-huh. so that could be a traumatic brain injury from, yeah. say, a car accident or a fall, or it could be a, a stroke. It could be a lack of oxygen caused mm. maybe from a drug overdose or a heart attack. So as we've been seeing more and more of these uh, opioid overdoses, one of the results of that is 
can be the person is brought back with naloxone, but they may have some uh, cell death from lack of oxygen in their brain. So uh, we work with folks as they're trying to get back on their feet and get employment. Uh, So we work closely with the state agency, Indiana Vocational Rehabilitation, to help navigate folks to the resources they need. You know, a lot of folks have never, they don't even realize they've had a brain injury. Um, They just know, well, you know, ever since I was in that car accident, I've been having problems. And I just had a concussion. That shouldn't be doing it. Well, a concussion's a brain injury. Oh, yeah. And sometimes that can leave some lasting effects. So we help people get the therapies and services they need. My role is to go out and do all the education and outreach for the program. So I educate all the professionals in local communities that might be working with the folks with brain injuries, and maybe they don't know much about brain injury. So it helps them be more effective with clients we might refer. And it just gets the word out there so people can start recognizing when maybe a client coming in for depression or a substance use disorder might actually have a history of brain injury that's interfering with how well they can do in that treatment. Right. So are you not at all seeing clients one-on-one? Right. right. Do you miss that? I do. There's a part of me that misses that. I, I really enjoyed those conversations with folks. But I also really like that community level work. That's been kind of a, a tension for me. The the let's do hands on direct service to help people in the moment. But then I, sometimes that can feel like a band aid, you know. Because if I'm sending them out of my office into a community that isn't fully serving everyone, or wh- whose systems are set up in ways that you know some folks fall through those cracks then what what am I doing? So yeah. I've kind of shifted to doing more the community level work. And that's not all you're doing. You've got a lot going on, as do so many of my guests on this show. Mm-hmm. You, you folks all make me feel like I'm lazy. I'll tell you <laughs> that. You've been uh, doing some teaching mm-hmm. at Indiana University. In the past, I was an adjunct uh, professor in the School of Social Work, taught there for probably 10 years. Mm-hmm. I've also worked in community mental health. Uh, my my career doing counseling has not been solely in private practice. Uh-huh. I've also worked in some agencies doing that. You worked for Amethyst House? Yeah, yeah. What's Amethyst House? Well, Amethyst House is a local provider uh, focused on working with folks with substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, they run an outpatient treatment center, and then they have uh, halfway house so- sober living situations for folks with lots of really good programming. Um, they've been around for a lot of years in this community. And so I work there part-time on top of my private practice uh, doing intensive outpatient uh, groups with folks coming through their services. Hmm. You've also uh, served on the board of directors of the Indiana chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a big believer in in belonging to one's professional organization. So Uh for me, it's the National Association of Social Workers, and we have a really active Indiana chapter. And so I got involved with the chapter. I was on a couple of their task forces and committees, and then there was an opening for a region six representative, the states divided into regions. So I did that um, for a few years. And as doing that, I was also 
on the board. And then uh, then I was elected to be vice president of the board mm-hmm. and uh, did that for several years, stepped in. Actually, once I had stepped off of the board, then there became a vacancy for that vice president position. And so I stepped back on for a little while just to help until mm-hmm. we got somebody else appointed. So. Yeah, I, I love that work. I love supporting social workers because our profession, we're in all kinds of settings. We work, yes, in mental health and substance use disorders, hospitals, schools, um, social service agencies, you know, it, pretty much anywhere you're going to find you some social workers. folks are all over the yeah, place. Yeah. Now, back in 2011, you co-founded an organization called Fair Talk. Mm-hmm an LGBTQ advocacy organization, mm-hmm. there, was, uh, there was a problem coming up in the state house regarding that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. What, so, what, tell me about that. Interestingly, so um, prior to 2011, the Democrats had control of the House of Representatives mm-hmm. at the state house. And because of that, there had been a, numerous attempts to write an amendment into the Bill of Rights of our state constitution that would have forever forbidden any legal recognition of same-sex couples in our state. Mm -hmm. So basically, we already had a law making same-sex marriage illegal, but this would have put it in our constitution. And so it would be harder to get rid of then if the people of Indiana wanted to change that. So that effort had been stymied by the Democrats being in charge of the House because it could never get through the House. It couldn't get out of committee. Well, in 2011, Republicans took uh, retook control of the House, and now it was sailing through, and it went through and passed in overwhelming margins in both the Senate and the House. I could see that it was going to come back in two years, or amending the Constitution. It has to pass again in two years, and then it goes for a public vote. And I honestly did not know how I could stay in this state if my fellow citizens, my neighbors and, and people that I know voted to write that kind of discrimination against me and my then partner mm-hmm. into our constitution. So I I felt like we needed an additional effort beyond the traditional, let's get business leaders and university presidents to come out against this. I was like, let's start getting people to talk to each other about this and humanize the issue. Because a lot of folks don't, don't really realize why this was so impactful for same-sex couples. Yeah. So, and, you know, the, the approach, uh, encouraging and supporting people and having respectful conversations with folks that disagree with them on this issue, uh, that kind of fits with my personality style and the way I like to go about creating change is through relationships, you know, something that goes beyond throwing Bibles at each other <laughs> over an issue. And so we, it was very grassroots. We connected with all kinds of organizations in different communities and church groups and whoever and did a lot of collaboration. And then when Freedom Indiana came to Indiana to, you know, really marshal our forces against this uh, our group got all of our leadership and our volunteers together, and we were, you know, we helped staff and actually helped run the phone banks down here in Bloomington uh, that, you know, were successful in defeating this amendment. And you uh, are a great example of uh, how that worked because you got married in 
2014. Yes, uh, twice, in fact. <laughs> you got married twice. So, well, now, we'd better explain that. Okay. Yeah. So so this is how crazy the, that time was. So in the summer of 2014, uh, we had a court decision from federal court level that said that Indiana had to start issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples, that it was discriminatory not to. So we had three days. We knew that a stay on that decision could come down any day. Mm. It turned out we had three days where that decision was in effect. And so my wife and I couldn't make it down, well, my then partner, and I couldn't make it down on the very first day. Mm -hmm. So we got down there the second day before the office opened because if that stay came down and we didn't have it done— you're out right. of luck. So we got it done, got married on, on the street corner out in front of the Charlotte Zetlow Justice Building. <laughs> and um, people were honking as they're driving by and yeah. total strangers stopped and we had some friends there. But we had already been planning to go to Illinois and get married uh -huh. in July. So we had the big bash, <laughs> the big deal, bash yeah. and we were going to get an Illinois marriage license because at that point, the previous fall, the state legislature had okayed same-sex marriage. And so we were going to go next door. That was my former home state. Yeah. We were going to go to Springfield where my sister still lived and, you know, had the hall rented, had the dresses, had the invites out. And then we had this opportunity. We decided to take it. And so we got legally married here. But then we went out in, three weeks later, I, I said it took three weeks and two states to get married completely. <laughs> <laughs> so now at least the uh, listening audience doesn't think you're a bigamist. <laughs> That's right. Like that. That's right. <laughs> Got married to the same person. <laughs> Just one was the ceremony and one was the legal. Now, I, and can I also say yes. that um, at the time the marriage licenses had not been amended, so I was actually the groom on our marriage license. Ah, one of us so, had to be. So it's different now, I mm -hmm, would assume. Mm -hmm. Did this affect your life in any way? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I cannot tell you. You know, what really struck me is there were two things. Number one, I remember the moment of walking through that door to get that marriage license. Because until that moment, I knew in my head how gay people were excluded from one aspect of yeah. our, our life as, as citizens. Right. But it hit me in the gut and in the heart when we walked through that door like any other Bloomington citizen right. could to go get that marriage license. So, you know, that was one thing that struck me. And then afterwards, after it was done and like we were legal and we had some legal protections, I was aware of like this uh, hovering dark cloud lifting off. Really? Like suddenly we felt safer. You know, um, if something happened to one of us, we had some legal rights. If if I lo if I lost my job today, you know, I could at least get health insurance through my yeah. wife. You know, that makes a difference. You met Jenny when both of you worked at Stonebelt, mm -hmm. and this this quote from your marriage announcement <laughs> just kills me. I've got to tell it. Quote. We bonded at first over incident reports. You're a couple of romantics, huh? <laughs> you know, you find love where you can. <laughs> and we happened to work at the same place. And, and um, each of us had a, a client who um, something happened. And so we had to fill out incident reports and coordinate and notify people. And, and so, the, you know, I... 
I knew Jenny, but we had not worked that closely because we were on separate teams. And mm-hmm. so that's really where I started to get to know her a little better. And then it went from there. So, you know. <laughs> and there you go. One thing leads to another. Hey, I want to put this in there, uh, Gene. You are no stranger to actual civic duty, and that being you're a member of the Bloomington Utilities Board. You were appointed Mm -hmm. by Mayor Hamilton. Correct. You're on there until 2021, I believe? I believe so. Now, if if I make it through to the city council, then Uh um, uh, that my seat will become vacant again right um i can you know be uh the council liaison actually it's really interesting because uh jim sims uh used to be in this seat on the board and then when he got appointed to city council right um he's now the ex officio member and i got appointed to his seat so yeah yeah all right so you've done a lot there's a quote from you that just kills me. I love this, and I want to tell you it, and and please explain it. Quote from you, I know democracy is messy, and I value that part of the process. What do you mean by that? So that kind of flows from my view of relationships in general, which is if, if you've got more than one person in a room, and they're both really showing up, you're going to have some disagreements, and you're going to see things in different ways, and you're going to have some points of, of commonality as well. Um, you expand that to our democracy. We're, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. We're trying to figure out the best ways to support each other and have our lives, and how are we going to interact. And, you know, so trying to bring people together in meaningful ways to come up with good solutions for our problems and and just to do some basic things like make sure the water is clean and you know our streets aren't flooding you're going to have a lot of disagreement and that i think is healthy yeah. if it if it number 1 if it's done respectfully and where both parties, all parties are showing up, genuinely trying to solve some problems instead of scoring political points. And if that process also includes all the voices that need to be at the table, too. And so, uh, you know, which is one of the other reasons I'm, I'm running. I want to make sure that all the voices are at the table. Yeah. But that's automatically going to make for a messy process. But right. it needs to be. If everything, if everybody just walked in lockstep and agreed on everything, um, we could very easily go off in the wrong direction. Interesting story that uh, you talk about an incident that happened when you were very young that informed how you look at the process now. And that is you'd wanted to be an altar girl. <laughs> yes. Well, so I, I grew up in a very Catholic family. Um, my dad actually had, had spent some time in monasteries before he left that and ended up getting married. Um, so I grew up in the Catholic church. We went to mass every Sunday. I was one of those kids that like, I took that seriously. I had a very active spiritual life mm-hmm. growing up. And I saw my uh, the boys in my classes getting to be altar boys and helping out. And so uh, several of the girls in my class, we wanted to do this. So we talked to our parish priest. Uh-huh. He thought it was a great idea, uh-huh. but we had to get the okay from the bishop. Uh-huh. And the bishop said no. 
The bishop said no because altar boy is the first step on the road to the priesthood and women can't be priests, so they can't take that first step. And to me, it was like you may as well have closed the doors to the church in my face. I had something that I wanted to contribute, and I couldn't because I was a girl. And that stuck with me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there's this thing, because I just talked about the door to the clerk's office and going through. There's something about doors being closed in people's faces yeah. that um, really bothers me. And maybe it comes from that. I don't know. La, la, la. We've run out of time, so join us Monday for Big Talk Extra during the 5 p.m. Daily Local News for more of this conversation. La, la. Jean Kapler, she's running for at-large seat in the city council in the Democratic primary this coming May. Jean, thanks so much for being on Big Talk. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great.